Welcome to the B-Sides Podcast, the show where we take a look at some of the more unappreciated and obscure artists, albums, and phenomenons in American music history. I'm Louise Nets, and this week we're going to take a look at the funk icon Betty Davis. Well, at least she should have been a funk icon. Somehow, a trailblazing, unafraid funk artist who influenced and married Miles Davis, was friends with Jimi Hendrix, and really influenced Prince, managed to fly under the radar. Now, the reason I wanted Betty to be the first episode is, number one, I'm a huge fan. I didn't really know a lot about her until last year, when I met the guest that's going to be on the show today, Danielle Maggio. But when I heard her music for the first time, I was just completely blown away. I just couldn't believe that I had never heard any of her songs before. Even though, in a way, because she influenced so many women in the music industry, well, just people and musicians in general, I kind of felt like I had heard her music just vicariously through others. Most people when I bring up Betty Davis, they think the actress, Betty Davis. But Betty the musician just couldn't be any further from that. She wasn't a blonde-haired, blue-eyed actress. She was a revolutionary black female musician who was really characterized by her suggestive lyrics, intense vocalizations, and sharp rhythms. She was someone who radically challenged the gender and race norms of African American women in the 60s and 70s. They say I'm different because I'm a piece of sugar cake. Sweet to the core, that's right, I got a rhythm. My great grandma didn't like a foxtrot. Betty Davis was born in North Carolina, but then shortly moved to Pittsburgh, where she grew up and spent most of her childhood. After that, she moved to New York City, and there she kind of became popular in the music clubs that were going on, even the folk scene that was going on in the early 60s. And she was a model. She was going to the Fashion Institute of Technology. She was featured in magazines like Seventeen, Ebony, and Glamour, And let me tell you, those photo shoots are just top drawer. There's one uh, of her in this sort of long patchwork dress. And I don't wear dresses, but that's something that I would put on in a heartbeat. While she was in New York, she was influenced by a really artsy crowd and started writing her own music. Her first major credit for writing was a song called Uptown to Harlem for the Chambers Brothers in 1967. And by 1968, she started recording some songs for Columbia Records. And during that time, she found herself caught up with famed jazz trumpeter Miles Davis, who was 19 years older than her at the time. She was the one who introduced him to psychedelic music, and also really influenced the way that he dressed. And just a little fun fact, she even came up with the album title for Bitches Brew. Originally, it was going to be Witches Brew. The records she made in those years were a little bit more restrained than the ones that were to come. After her divorce from Miles Davis, she let loose. And in 1973, she released her first album, Betty Davis, which includes my favorite single in Betty's discography. If I'm in luck, I might get picked up. Betty gained a reputation for her stage performances. There's only one film of her, actually, and it's of her in Paris, and there's no sound on it. But you can just tell through that video, and especially if you just take a quick glance at any of her album covers, how revolutionary she was for her time. She was ahead of it. But as creative as she was on stage, she suffered for it. A lot of journalists and people who went to see the show mostly focused on her forthright sexuality and didn't pay a lot of attention to the amazing music and amazing band she had backing her up on stage. 
The headline for a review about Betty in a 1976 issue of Penthouse was simply, The Put-On Who Puts Out. And in it, the author writes, Her candor is a refreshing change from the coy sexuality that is the usual lot of female knockouts, but then, just how much sexual frankness can you take? Obviously, they weren't ready for her. Betty recorded three more albums. Two of them were released. And the last was shelved for 33 years by the record label. And after that, Betty basically disappeared from the music industry. She wasn't really seen or heard from until all of her albums were re-released in 2009, along with that last album that got shelved, Is It Love or Desire? A lot of people, including myself, rediscovered Betty with those reissues, and what a rediscovery it was. And most recently, in 2019, Betty released her first new song, called A Little Bit Hot Tonight, but she wasn't the one who performed it. It was this woman named Danielle Maggio, who was a fan of Betty's and who got to be close to her when she started going to the University of Pittsburgh. Danielle Maggio is now a PhD candidate in ethnomusicology at the University of Pittsburgh. And when I first met Danielle, she told me about how humbled she was by the opportunity that she has to secure Betty's place in history after it had been lost for more than 30 years. Along with being friends with Betty, Danielle was also an associate producer on the film They Say I'm Different, a documentary about Betty's life. I was so happy to be able to talk to her over Skype about Betty, someone who I consider to be one of the most powerful feminist icons of the 20th century. But, um, yeah, I've just been trying to work and teaching a little bit. Oh, that's cool. What are you teaching? Uh, I teach world music at Penn State Greater Allegheny. And cool. then in the spring, I'm actually teaching my own class that I created from scratch at Pitt called The Cultural Politics of Soul. So it's wow. going to be all, like, soul funk music and, like, the kind of... Oh, that's like, so cool. Yeah. That's so cool. That's, like, my main interest. So mm. teach a class on it. Well, you'd be happy to know I'm working at the World Music Foundation podcast here in Chicago. So that's been oh, really that's... great. We just interviewed um, Femi Kuti. That was really cool. Awesome. I know. Yeah, it was really cool. I didn't know anything about that genre. About... And uh, no, I didn't know anything. So yeah. it was really cool. It was really cool. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I know I feel so bad because... The Chronicle spiked my story last year. And I was like, and I was like, damn it, Betty's been buried again. It made me so mad. True, true. I was like, what is it with Betty in the press? It just doesn't. <laughs> it's like, honestly, a thing. Yeah. And yeah. even the stuff that gets written about her, which is, I feel like, another reason why it's taking me so long. I mean, it's not taking me so long. Like, some people spend like seven, eight years on their PhD. It's like five been doing it for like three so mm -hmm. it's not that crazy but I feel like there's so much awful writing and stuff even when people do like little interviews it's just for like sure. always the same stuff it's like mm -hmm. super basic so I feel like I have to do surface yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah but that's but yeah, what we just, just don't feel we need don't feel bad at all it's... I think with you I really want to talk about uh well first off a little bit about yourself and then how you're connected to Betty I'm currently getting my PhD in ethnomusicology at the University of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And I came into the program with the intent to study soul and funk music and kind of the unheard of women's history involved in that and the kind of intersection of genre, gender, sexuality within that aspect of the music industry. Oh, and Betty's the perfect case study for that, really. It's amazing and you know I I'm also a record collector so whenever Betty's records were reissued in 2007 that's when I learned about her um and my friend called me on the phone who lived like 40 minutes away and said you have to come over right now like you have to come this minute and so I drove to his house he played me Betty Davis and I was blown away like I had a visceral reaction to it and I listened to it all the time and I would turn people on to it and she was just this like magical 
revolutionary figure in my imagination. I had no idea she was from Pittsburgh, which is where I'm from. I had no idea that she was living 40 minutes away, you know, from where I was living. Uh, and then I just started really getting into pop music and pop culture as an academic. So the, actually the first paper that I wrote on Betty was at Columbia as an undergrad. It was that far? Yeah, it was for Terry Hemmert's class, Rock and Soul on the Radio. And she said we had to write a paper about any artist that recorded after 1970. Mm-hmm. So Betty Davis. So that was the Perfect. first time I wrote about her. Yeah. And um, I recently went back and reviewed that paper. And it was pretty good. It was pretty good, you know. Um, the writing style wasn't as sophisticated, maybe. But right. uh, I think the main ideas that I initially was excited about with her are still the same ideas that I'm progressing yeah my research now but yeah so the last five years I've really just spent immersing myself in graduate school but all my research is like ethnographic focused Mm -hmm. so uh, my master's thesis was on gospel mime which is uh, I saw that which is a really amazing amazing cultural phenomenon that actually started in Pittsburgh Uh, there's nothing written on it besides you know my MA so I did do it from the ground up, go to the church, spend time with the, the you know, the youth organization, spend time mm-hmm. with uh, people going to church, learn about it from, from that, um, and still having a fun time, you know, when I can. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And this might be another episode, but I might have to talk to you if you've ever done any research on sacred steel guitar, mm-hmm. which sacred steel, it's like um, steel guitar in the church. Um, It's really, really cool. I just learned about it a few weeks ago because we were doing an episode about Hill Country Blues. Anyway, uh, and I'm still Terry's TA, so, you know, it's my last year. So I adore her. Um, She's been a great, yeah, she's been such a great, um, not only role model, but just like support person for me. She's She's amazing. She's an an amazing human. Yeah. Um, I love her so much. Mm Mm-hmm. So Betty came back a little bit with the reissues that she had, um, but she was one of those artists that really sort of like fell through the cracks, even though she influenced so many people. Um, You know, we always talk about with Terry, like most people, when I say Betty Davis, they think of the actress, right? Why do you think it was that she managed to sort of slide under the radar? I think it's a few things and they're all related. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think first and foremost, you have to look at the sheer facts that she is a black woman who was immersed in a music industry that was extremely racist, sexist, uh, homophobic, super masculinist. Mm -hmm. And Betty really derives from the tradition of the classic blues women, Bessie Smith, you know, Ma Rainey, uh, all of those women. And her story is very similar. Yeah, she has a very similar story. There's a lot of parallels between her, especially Bessie Smith. Um, So the fact that she was a black woman asserting that level of dominance and independence and agency and autonomy, Mm -hmm. not just in her music, because if you listen to her music, the lyrics are all about empowerment, Um, Mm -hmm. self-resilience, dominance, sexual, social, psychological, but also in her career and business choices. So Betty was one of the very, very few women in the 70s that had full artistic control of her music from songwriting to recording to producing. She managed herself. Um, At that point in the 70s, only Carol King, Joni Mitchell, and Aretha Franklin were the other women that had that level of control. Yeah. So she always, uh, she always waited for her opportunity to be able to control her sound, her image, her look. Um, so I think that was a big reason why she fell through the cracks because she didn't let that kind of male macho like manager archetype take over which took over a lot of women's careers 
Yeah. Um, and do, do you think the, the press coverage of her had anything to do with it? Because I was looking back into some older articles uh, from like, for example, she has a um, article written about her in Penthouse um, where the, the headline for it is the put on who puts out. And I was like, wow, that's so one dimensional, you know, yeah. and I and I read the articles about it. And I don't think anywhere in the articles they talk about the music i think the whole thing they're just talking about the performance um which i mean that's a whole that's a whole thing and and how people had a reaction to it but um i didn't know about her song dedicated to the And when I read that, I was like, wow, that really distilled it all down. Um, yeah. and, and I really think that the press must have had something to do with the fact that she didn't, you know, um, I, I guess for lack of better words, like make it like some of the other artists did. Absolutely. And that article that you're referring to in Penthouse is a represent, representative of all the other articles. Um they focus on her physicality. They focus on her attractiveness. They focus on her her clothes mm-hmm. um, more than they focus on anything else. And there's so many album reviews and concert reviews that are just blatantly racist and sexist. Like like not even pretending to be anything besides that. Right. I mean, I really think that obviously this word wasn't around because we were so far away from any type of third work, you know, third wave feminism, but she was really, she really dealt with a lot of slut shaming throughout right. her career. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. That boils down to is that, and what's funny is that the whole thing for Betty was performative. Mm-hmm. Like she was performing femininity and masculinity on that stage. And that going back to your initial question about why she felt the cracks, that's another reason why people were so turned off by her because she wasn't just portraying a feminine sexuality. She was very androgynous. If you look at pictures of her, you can often see her like sticking out her tongue, um, holding the microphone up to her crotch to kind of make like a phallic prop. Um, She would, you know, reading concert reviews, she would like hump the speakers or lunge really far. And so if you think about the 1970s, this is like the era of glam rock, Mick, you know, Mick Jagger, Mark Bolin, David Bowie, Freddie Mercury. So all of these men are essentially doing this as a rock and roll performer. Mm-hmm. But because Betty was a black woman, she was expected to sound R&B. Right. She was expected to fit in that genre formation, which she didn't fit into. She was everything. I really think of Betty as a fusion artist. Yeah. Blues, funk, punk, rock, everything. Do you think that... um she sort of maybe tried at the beginning to fit into that because I was listening to uh, in the 60s, her music, like the Columbia years music, it's a lot different from her work in the 70s. Do you think that she made that shift because she left sort of like the um, the confines of like the big record labels? Or do you think it was like because she was divorced from her husband or, you know, was a combination of those things? Because I really think that she really expresses a freedom going into the 70s that she didn't have in the 60s. Totally. You know? Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's actually something that I'm, like, really thinking about right now, just going through her whole discography. I mean, in 1968-69, first of all, you have to think of the context. Like, there really wasn't hard funk happening yet. Like, James Brown and Sly and the Family Stone just started to transform soul into that more aggressive militant style of funk. So I really think of her as like kind of experimenting on that same level. But you have to imagine as a vocalist, that was really the first time she had ever been in a studio for to cut a whole record. And it was under the eye of her 
former husband, Miles Davis, who history has told us not just with Betty, but with many women, he was extremely abusive, extremely, extremely controlling, extremely jealous. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why the album didn't come out because Miles shelved it and didn't want her to like become famous or whatever. Um, right. But I think that in that, in those tracks, you can hear there's glimpses of the Betty from the seventies. Like there's moments where you hear her play a little bit with yeah. like, breathiness and mm-hmm. sp- like screeching a little bit but I really think that that album just shows an artist kind of coming into her own and and getting comfortable with being in the studio um and it wasn't until 72 when she would record you know her first album and really free her voice to experiment in the ways that we know it is now and Betty was the first person to tell you back then and even today like she doesn't consider herself a singer you know like she'll be like Aretha Franklin was a singer Shaka Khan's a singer I'm more of a sound projector mm-hmm. I can make a sound work like she's super, that's great she's super that's rhythm. great I think that she thinks of her voice more as like a rhythm instrument than anything Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, you think about Ella Fitzgerald, like with the scat, it's more of a it's more of an instrument than it is like a vocal part, you know, um, and and Betty didn't just leave the like the record. In, well, not the record industry, but the big record label. She was kind of like dismissed from them. Right. Um, and the thing that I find really interesting about that is she wasn't only dismissed by like record labels and critics. She was also dismissed by the NAACP, like the people that were supposed to support her. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Because I just think that's really interesting. Yeah. So she, um, Betty, her first album came out in 73 and there was a song on it called If I'm in Luck, I Just Might Get Picked Up. It's actually my favorite, my favorite it's Betty song. <laughs> so good. And a radio station in Detroit played it and there was so much pushback from it. Um, the local African-American community Obviously, we're talking about a very patriarch, patriarchal Christian community, right? That kind of as- facet of that community. Um, they basically pressured the radio station to stop playing her music. And so the NAACP actually sent out like a memo to people that subscribed or whatever to the NAACP, essentially telling families to like make sure that their children aren't listening to this music and aren't buying Betty Davis albums. And they actually called her a disgrace to her race. And that really hurt Betty. Um, That really hurt Betty because for her, it's like, this is for the advancement of my people. And you're literally stopping my advancement by not letting my music play. So she had pushback not only from the white mainstream culture that was just freaked out by her unapologetic dominance, but she also had pushback from the black community. And she also had pushback from the feminist community in the seventies because a lot of feminists, which was dominated by, you know, white White women at the time, thought that she was essentially slut shaming. It goes back to that. Like they weren't understanding the kind of avant-garde performance that she was delivering. And they just were so fixated on the sexuality of it. And so one concert, like literally the women's liberation movement, like picketed her concert. So she really had it from all over the place um, as far as being marginalized by different sectors of the community and society. So what about the um, context of history? What has um, changed about the feminist movement that we're now like so accepting of her? She's kind of coming up as a feminist icon for us. Like what's changed about the feminist culture that we have now versus the 70s when she was put down for that? I mean, I think a lot of things have changed. I think if you're talking about um, intersectionalism, I mean, you're talking about thinking about things from an intersectional perspective, the 70s, the second wave feminism was dominated by white middle class, you know, women. Um, when you start to bring in other voices, specifically women of color, um, people from the LGBTQ community, people from lower class communities, it starts to evolve the conversation in a way where you can actually see other people and not just, you know, analyze them. So I think the intersectional aspect of feminism has changed. 
but you really have these conversations about like sex positivity now, body positivity, right. slut shaming. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are very new ideas. You have this conversation that's rapidly progressing about gender being this fluid social concept, you know, that you can manipulate and play to your liking. And there's really nobody that can tell you, um, what gender identity or what gender performance that you should be, you know, delivering. So I think the androgynous aspect of her performance is very much represented now. I mean, in good ways and bad ways, right? You have people like Beyonce and Rihanna and Nicki Minaj and Cardi B who are serving this just raw, aggressive, unapologetic um, feminism. And then you have people like Miley Cyrus who is, you know, doing similar things, but there's issues of cultural appropriation there. But, you know, you have pictures of Miley Cyrus like grabbing her crotch and sticking her tongue out, which literally Betty did 40 years ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. So I think that I think that society is just less afraid of sexually free women. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, it yeah. sounds ridiculous, and that's not on all bases, of course. I mean, I think that it's so much better now, but there's still a long way to to go, especially in the music industry. It's still a super conservative industry, right? Um, and it's still extremely male dominated. You know, yeah. Um, but I think those are the two main things. I think incorporating uh, intersectional voices, and I think this whole conversation about sex positivity, body positivity, and like anti-slut shaming is really why people are drawn to Betty. Because for me, I feel like she embodies all of those things. Mm-hmm. You're like answering all my questions in advance. Um, <laughs> um, but that's why I think what you just said, I think that's why my for my generation it's so important to tell betty's story because we take all of those luxuries that are our freedom luxuries that we have for granted you know and then when i hear a story like that i'm like oh i need to check myself because you know there are people that came before me that made it possible for me to have the social freedom that i have right now you know for me to you know have my hair short or for me to you know not wear a dress even you know the stuff like that um so that's why i i really think that it's important for my generation to hear people like her story and, um, you know, black female voices, especially of the past, their stories don't get told that much. Um, Absolutely. So, and I, yeah. was just, I was just going to say, too, I think it's especially important for young white women to really learn about black artistic stories mm-hmm. because so often black women's cultural work gets erased because usually it gets appropriated by the dominant culture. I mean, even I feel like now this whole kind of culture of of attitude and all these like memes and stuff, like a lot of that stuff comes from black women's cultural work and just their everyday vernacular. And all of a sudden now it's yeah. like this mainstream thing. Right. Um, so I think it's really important for white women to just know the history and know how much of American popular culture is taken from the cultural work of, of black women. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's that. Yeah, that was exactly um, my point. And, and to go back to what you were talking about with um, people being afraid of sort of this um, like a stereotypical caricature of what a black woman is. um, I, I read a quote from Carlos Santana talking about Betty, and you've probably read it too, about saying that she was the first Madonna, and uh, Madonna's more like Marie Osmond <laughs> compared to Betty. Um, but why why are we so afraid in our culture of women like Betty? Because I think we still are now. I mean, if you look at um, what happened with Beyonce at the Super Bowl a few years ago, Gosh, totally. it, it's still treated in that way. Why are we so afraid of women like this? I mean you know, this goes back to the very foundation of, of what this country was built on. You're talking about uh, a patriarchal society that was founded on slavery. So you have this sexist and racist structure in place that is meant to enhance and progress straight white males. So when you have these slow steps that are made throughout the decades and black women are at the forefront, 
you know, mainstream culture is going to resort back to that fear that was implanted in them all that time ago. I mean, I think that's why the classic blues women of the 20s, really the story always comes back to them because they were the first organic intellectuals as far as black women's knowledge, right? And and sharing and making public things that are personal. Um, and so I think also too, another reason why people are afraid of that is because people don't want to hear about women's private problems for so long women's place emotional educate like everything it was res- sure. resonated to the private realm mm-hmm. and then when that's done public it makes people have to confront their privilege it makes them have to confront you know the systems that are built for them uh but I also think that there's an element of, you know, lust and desire that people are uncomfortable with. I think people think that they're not supposed to be turned on by something. And then when they are turned on by it, it makes them feel uncomfortable, right? Um, right. There's a lot of, of really amazing research about that when it comes to like minstrelsy and blackface, this idea that they are, are you know, these white performers were essentially stealing black culture because they were so obsessed with it and they fetishized it and they were so intrigued by it and so american culture just has this really really complicated dynamic relationship between things that they're supposedly afraid of and hate and things that they really have loved and lusted after from the very beginning yeah um and another question i wanted to ask you just specifically that i have a hard time a lot of times especially as someone who's not super feminine i have a hard time with a lot of music that's supposed to be quote-unquote empowering especially like um modern popular music like sometimes it just makes me uncomfortable because it feels um objectifying you know, like, I feel like whenever I watch, like, the thing that comes to mind, obviously, well, for me, at least, is, like, Anaconda. Like, I think about um, the portrayal in that and how, um, like, there's also a man in the music video just feels, like, really objectifying for some reason. But when I listen to Betty's music, there's something about it that's so empowering. And, like, I always feel like if I put on one of her songs, I can't not dance and I'm not a dancer, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, um I'm try. I've been trying to pin it down for so long, but there's really something about it that's different. Is it the often authenticity of it? Like, what makes it different that really makes it feel so empowering? Well, I think again, I think it's a few things. First and foremost, Betty's music talks very explicitly about desire and pleasure, but she's talking about it from an autonomous perspective. So, if you listen to Betty's lyrics she's actually not talking about being pleasured or giving pleasure for a man or whatever. All of her songs are talking about like being in control, dominating the situation Mm -hmm. and essentially like directing the sensuality that's happening around her. So she speaks from a first person perspective. Almost all of her songs are sung in the first person. A lot of her songs are autobiographical. So it does have that authentic feel to it. Um, I think another reason is the vocal abandon that she delivers in her performance. Um, I feel like Betty was like an early riot girl, you know, in the sense that she yeah, didn't totally like she didn't care about vocal quality and like the idea of talent, right? She really just attacked the music to get the lyrics across. I love that across. Yeah, and. You know, that's why she says, she says, I'm a sound projector. Like, I project sounds with my voice. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're so used to, and even today, I mean, I think all the time, like, has there been another woman that has been that raw with her vocals um, besides, like, screamo and emo and stuff? Like, there yeah. really has been an artist that just abandons any conception of, you know, talent and skill and so many women vocalists, I feel that they think they need to sound pretty, look pretty, sound sexy, look sexy. And Betty, you know, she sounds hardcore. Like she sounds like she is on a war path. Yeah. And when you look at pictures of her singing, she's sweating. She's like furrowing her brow. Like there's no element of like, oh, I'm performing for you. Like she's right. performing at 
for you. And so I think that's another huge reason why her music feels so empowering because she's just in control from beginning to the end. Yeah. She didn't need a setting spray for her (laughs) um, performances. It was all, yeah, laid out there. Um, What do you think girls and women today can learn from Betty's music? Because obviously it was a different time, different problems, but what can we take away from the way she handled her own independence um, and just the way that she conducted herself. Because um, one thing I think was really interesting was she quit modeling um, because she said like, oh, you don't have to have a brain to model. And I found that just really poignant. But but what do you think we can learn and apply to our lives today that, that we can learn from Betty's music? Yeah, I think um, ownership of your work is really important. So Betty actually... Uh, formed her own publishing company very early on when she started making music because even before she made her own music, she was writing songs for other people. And so she was smart enough to know that if she didn't own the publishing rights of those songs, she wouldn't get paid for it. So Mm -hmm. she was so committed to artistic control. For instance, she got offered a writing job, a writing contract from Motown, but she turned it down because they didn't give her publishing rights. Um, Same with EMI and Atlantic. So she had these opportunities to be with labels, but she knew they wouldn't give her artistic control. She also had the opportunity, you know, Eric Clapton wanted to produce her first album, Mm -hmm. but she didn't want to because she wanted to produce her first album. So I think being committed to artistic control and artistic integrity is really important for women because nothing that women do, unfortunately, is disconnected from their body. Um, I hope that that, I hope that there's a day where that happens, but I still really feel like women's thoughts and voices and work and politics are still so connected to their physical features and their body because the female body is just so politicized and it's so sexualized. Um, so I think staying true to what you set out to do Um, is super important and something that we can learn from Betty. Um, Also, just as far as knowing her at this point in her life, just the resiliency that she's gone through so much and a lot of it isn't public um, out of respect for her privacy, but she's gone through so much and she still is like the sweetest, most humble, caring person I, I know. Um, and she's taught me a lot about the kind of art of intention to do things with intention, how to focus your energy, um, how to just be like still and be silent, um, in a way that is so rare in this world, you know, everything's so fast paced, everything's moving super fast and Betty's just so content with herself. And I think that comes from a lifetime of never selling out, you know, like she can literally just be like, I never sold out. I never did anything that I didn't feel confident about. And that's that's great because I feel like as women, a lot of times we feel like if we're offered something, we have to take it because we don't know when the chance is going to come again or when someone's going to give us another opportunity. But realizing that you have agency is something that you can really take away from her story. I appreciate that about her. Absolutely. so she's influenced so many artists too um what would we be missing out on right now if it weren't for Betty Mm. we'd be missing out on so much I mean I really think that Betty was I mean Betty was around and was at the epicenter of a lot of different countercultures so she was extremely influential um in the kind of Greenwich Village Jimi Hendrix Sly Stone, Andy Warhol, you know, scene of the late 60s. Um, She was extremely influential in the early punk rock and early glam rock scene. So even though she, I don't think she gets like noted in that as much as she should. But exactly. That's why she's on this podcast. (laughs) She was hanging out with Mark Bolin of T-Rex. She was hanging out with the New York Dolls. And when you look at those artists, like they're basically doing the same thing that Betty's doing. Even like the costumes or the clothing they're wearing is so similar. But because they're male, you know, it's less intimidating. It's less scary. Right. Um, but I really don't think that we would have Prince. And I know for a fact that Prince 
was a huge Betty fan. And when he started wanting to make music and bring his band together, he would bring the Betty album and show it to his musicians and be like, if you don't know this, you need to know this. Like, this is what we're trying to do. Um, Hell so, yeah. I mean, Grace Jones, Nona Hendricks, um, all of those people. And a lot of people I talk to say, you know, if only Betty started five years later, right? If only Betty started making music in the late 70s, early 80s, maybe there would have been a space for her. But I also feel like she had to carve out that space for... Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to go on to you a little bit um, more, uh, so in an interview a long time ago, I think it was in, um, uh, 2016, uh, Betty said, there's a song I wrote called A Little Bit Hot Tonight, and it's one of those songs I'd like to record. Um, and this was a while ago, and you actually ended up recording that song. What was that like for you? That just sounds amazing. It sounds like a dream come true. It was, uh, yeah, it was. It was a very surreal, amazing experience. It was definitely a game changer. Um, Betty, you know, like I said, Betty's extremely humble and sweet and kind. So she really, whenever we started hanging out, she asked me a lot of questions about me. And she was interested in what I did and who I was. And so when I told her that I sing, she was, like, insistent that I sing for her. Like, on the spot, like, sing for her. Um, so I did and, you know, she liked my voice and music was just something that we always built on together. We always shared music with each other. I would make her mix CDs. We listened to music all the time together. And so she kept telling me like for the last year, she would say, uh, I'm going to write you a song. I was like, okay. Like I didn't really think anything of it. Um, and then one day I go to her house and she like set down two pieces of handwritten paper in front of me. And it was lyrics. And she was like, all right, this is your song. And so she taught it to me. Like, we did, you know, super call and response. Like, she would sing a line. I would sing it back at her kitchen table. Um, and oh then, my God. She, yeah, it was yeah. amazing. It was, like, honestly, like, the stuff of dreams. Like, it was super crazy. And, um, yeah, and then she decided that she wanted to record it. And so I got together an amazing band of local musicians who I'm friends with. And uh, Betty rolled up to rehearsal. Me and her showed up to rehearsal, and she was wearing a floor-length gold silk. Iconic. Oh, my God. That Jimi Hendrix gave her. What? Yeah. And <laughs> Does this story had, get better? <laughs> had a like, turquoise, she had a lipstick on, and she showed up ready to teach the band this music. And what's really cool, me was I've heard and read and researched about how Betty made music for years but then I got to actually see her make music like in the process and so she still uses a tape recorder which is what she did back in the day and so she had mm -hmm. this 1996 Sony cassette tape recorder and she would sing or hum the, the parts into it so she would hum the bass part you know and then she would hum the keyboard part and so she actually taught the musicians the song this way. And then we started doing it like more in person. Um, so that was amazing. So seeing her actively be like a band leader and, and working with these and she was a pro. Like she picked it up so easy and it was so obvious to see that she music is her true love. And she's such a songwriter and she's such a producer. And then when we went to record it, she was there every single step of the way next to the sound engineer and she was so active in like telling the musicians what she wanted um you know playing with different things ornamenting things differently uh really interacting with everyone and also being collaborative like asking people if they like that idea or getting people's ideas uh and then using them but then the really amazing part was getting to mix with her and so you know, going back to the studio after everything was recorded. And that was the first time she'd been in a studio since 79. So wow. everything obviously digital now. And so being like a 75 year old woman who hasn't been in the industry for 40 years and just being so like brave and mm -hmm. bold in your conception, everyone was shocked that she 
hadn't been doing this for 40 years because she just picked up like right where she left off, you know? Yeah. And she really has such a, a, a fine tuned ear. Um, she knew exactly what she wanted and she was in no rush. Like she spent, it was like an eight hour day of mixing the song, you know, and she was just amazing. Um, and I, yeah, it's honestly like the coolest thing I've ever done. I'm super proud of it. I'm super proud to collaborate with her, like in a creative sense. And I'm super proud that the, the song, uh, it's on Bandcamp. So you can find the song, uh, on my Bandcamp. So daniellemaggio.bandcamp.com and all the proceeds from the song, go to the Betty Davis Scholarship, which wow. is a scholarship that um, we set up for a graduating senior uh, that's going into music, and it's at Betty's alma mater, so it's the high school that Betty graduated from, Cool. and so all of the proceeds go to that, and um, it's really rad, I mean, it got a lot of traction, you know, Pitchfork wrote about it, The Wire wrote about it, Afropunk, um, publications from all over the world japan turkey brazil like that's great oh my god it's really exciting i I know that people are so happy to know that betty is you know being musical again because that's her true love Mm -hmm. so that was awesome you know we still are talking about a follow-up you know betty does things on her own time so there's no rushing her and you know there's talk of doing another song uh soon but that's all up to betty you know yeah and speaking of that tape recorder was that the one that you got to keep or was that a different one so yeah because i loved i loved that story (laughs) (laughs) she had this tape recorder that she's probably had since the 90s and it finally died and so in betty very in very betty fashion she asked me to get the same exact tape reporter for her so I had, <laughs> I had to go on ebay and find it because they don't make them anymore yeah and so I got her this new one and um she gave me her old one as like you know a gift so that is in my office as kind of this like that's amazing to Betty but I think that the new tape recorder was used for uh the song yeah yeah, yeah. And then um, my last question for you. So I know you've listened to probably, I don't maybe her whole discography. I don't know. Yeah, I have. Um, is there a Betty lyric that still makes you blush? Mm, makes me blush. Oh, man. I don't know if it makes me blush, but... Oh, man. I mean, Game Is My Middle Name is my favorite Betty song. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, those lyrics, you know, rap on, heavy one, tell me the world is round, get inside my head, just mess up my mind, do me in, do me in. I mean, there's oh my so God. many, yeah. but um, anti-love song. I mean, I think he was a big freak, too, lyrically. Yeah. One of my favorites, because it's classic. such a genius way of reverting gender roles. Taking the power back, yeah. It's, yeah, it's amazing, so... Yeah, I mean, Hori Angel, too. It's really, really It's good. amazing. Oh, my God. Um, so many. Yeah. Uh, no Color, No Tramp But, yeah, Game Is My Middle Name is definitely my favorite Betty song. Cool. Um, and I think it just, like, sums up her life, like... She didn't let the game of patriarchy, the game of racism, all of these fucked up games that people play, that men play in control, um, she just did not let them affect her. You know, she didn't mm-hmm. let them get the best of her. I think that song really kind of like is her manifesto. Yeah. Well, I'm, I actually haven't heard that one, so I'm going to have to go back and listen to it. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> and I really appreciate you talking to me is there um is there are there any other like women of color musicians that i should know about that you think are unappreciated because i'm always i'm always i'm always open to emails yes (laughs) and ideas i think and this would actually be an amazing like 
part two or a way to kind of continue this. So there's yeah. an organization that's called Black Women Rock. Okay. And it was created by a woman who's a poet named Jessica Care Moore mm-hmm. out of Detroit. And they literally organized themselves uh, in honor of Betty. And they call themselves the Daughters of Betty. Wow. And okay. It's all of these like fierce women who are doing rock oriented music, but everyone has their own flair and they're kind of, you know, non they're not mainstream. They're so talented and they perform and they do panels and conferences. And I've been lucky enough to go to two of their shows already and I've met a bunch of them. I've actually interviewed a lot of them for my dissertation because they Betty for them is their ultimate. Like she they're she's their icon, their role model, like mm-hmm. their figure. Um, and they call themselves Daughters of Betty. Like there's one artist in particular who's from Toronto. Her name is Sate, S-A-T-E. Yeah, I've, I've seen video of her, yeah. She's dope. Um, Tamar Kali uh, is an amazing artist. Uh, Militia Vox is like this fierce metal artist. Um, uh, Liza Colby. There are so many women, but if you go to blackwomenrock.com or like go on their Instagram, you'll see all of these women who identify as a daughter of Betty. And um, cool. I think that they're amazing. Yeah, they're yeah. amazing. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate your time, and I hope that we'll be in touch and talk again because I just think you're amazing. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I really, really do. It's nice to know that people are giving Betty some love. We are. We're trying. They're not gonna. They're not gonna be able to spike this podcast so yes (laughs) that's awesome yeah let me know if you need anything else at all all right i appreciate you okay thank you so much all right give terry a big hug for me i'm seeing her tonight so oh my gosh please give her a big hug for me i don't even know if she knows about that song that i did with betty i'll ask her i don't think she does because you know she doesn't really answer emails yeah and i would send it to her but i don't even know if she knows um, so I'll be curious to see what she thinks about that. Yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah, I'll let her know. All right. Okay, I'll talk to you night. later. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Danielle, so much for talking to me. And for also keeping Betty's legacy alive and present. She's really a national treasure. Again, I'm Louise Nets. And if you like the show, head on over to Instagram and Twitter at BSidesPod to find out when the next episode is coming out and to check out the Spotify playlist I made for this episode. All of our favorite songs are going to be on there. On the next episode, I'll be talking to Owen Mysterovich of the Chicago band Paddlefish about the New York no-wave scene of the late 70s and early 80s. Thanks for listening and helping me to flip history over to the B-side.